0: Happy Sabbath, hello, hello. If you're joining us this week, we are currently in part two of our series, Comeback Season. And if you were not here last week, um, this really kind of is like a part one, a direct part two to our part one. So a lot of... The things we talked about in part one kind of go hand in hand with what we're going to talk about today. So just a quick to fill you in if you're new here, your first week, comeback season, what else has to do with anything about the Bible or scripture. Um, The reason the title of this series is comeback season is uh, twofold. One, I feel like when you use that phrase, right, oh, it's a comeback something, um, when it comes to like pop culture and sports and and. And celebrities, I feel like it has two main meanings, and one of the main meanings it has is when an artist or a celebrity or an, art, uh, an actor comes back from irrelevance, right? An artist put out an album, and then for 10 years, there was nothing, and then they come back with an album. That, that latest album is called this comeback album, right? A return to relevance for that artist or that person. And then again, there's the context of sports. When there's a comeback, when a team stages a comeback in sports, a team was down, a team was losing, they were down by three goals, they were down by 20, 30 points, and they stage a comeback, and they recover that loss, and they end up winning the game. And both of those meanings are kind of woven into the point of this series, which is comeback season. And really, the theme verse of this series is found in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, and we've talked about it before. And it reads, For though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again, but the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. And in this proverb, the the author of this proverb paints the picture of two people, a righteous person and a wicked person. The problem is that both of them fall. And the only thing separating the righteous person from the wicked person is that the righteous person chooses to get back up and rise again. And the question that we're asking in this series is, How does one do that? If I want to be this righteous person, how can I follow that advice? how do I get back up and rise again? And the way we're talking about this series is in the context of repentance and forgiveness. Two words where if you grew up in church, you're probably very familiar with. Last week, we started our series by talking about really what does it mean to fall? Because if we're being honest, for a lot of us, if falling is just sinning, right, doing something bad, for most of us, Do we really need to repent that much? Like, when's the last time you killed someone? When's the last time you cheated on your spouse? When's the last time you, you know, brought an idol into your home and bowed down to it? You probably haven't. It's probably been a long time if you've ever. And so, if if the requirement for repentance is to do something bad, and generally speaking, you feel like you behave pretty well, you follow the rules, you obey, then what is the need for repentance and regular repentance and confession? And what is the need to be forgiven? And we talked about last week where it really is less about when it comes to God's view of sin. It's really less about what you do and more about where your heart is. And we talked about two examples. One person, all they did was eat a fruit off a tree. And the other person, all they did was hit a rock with a stick. Yet in both of those instances... The consequences were catastrophic, not because of what the individual did. There's nothing inherently evil about hitting a rock with the stick. There's nothing inherently evil about going fruit-picking. But the heart of, in which both of those actions were, were executed was in both of those instances, that individual, whether it was Eve or Moses, replaced God in their own hearts with themselves. They heard the word of God, and they decided, I don't care what God has to say. I know what's best. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know how to make water come out of a rock because I've done that before. I know what's right and what's wrong. I'm going to figure this out for myself. I don't need God. And in both of those instances, we talked about how it can be a very dangerous place to be where you don't know what God has to say in your life, and you don't care because you feel like you're very, very comfortable just doing you. You don't need God, and you're okay not needing God. You don't know what God has to say in your life, so you're not really disobeying him. But if you're being honest, it's better to just not know, because then you can just continue doing what you're doing. And if that's the case, I'm glad you're here today. And we talked about last week how the longer we live life as God, instead of submitting to God, the less relevant God becomes in our lives, and the more hardened our hearts become to his presence. This week, we're picking up right where we left off. And, and maybe last week, you felt inspired, like, yeah, I, need a, I really do need to ask for forgiveness more. Let me explore this concept. And maybe you went home. You went home, and you're like, God, dear God, please forgive me. Amen. And you woke up, or you, you, you got up from your prayer, and you looked around, and you patted yourself down, and you felt like, is that it? Am I good? Is are we good together? Go? Can I continue living my life? And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation before where you felt like you you've asked for forgiveness and you prayed and, and nothing changed. Or maybe you're in a situation in your life where you, you've made some mistakes and you, you have this bad habit and you pray to God, God, take this away, like I, I shouldn't be doing this, I know, I'm sorry, forgive me. And then months, weeks and months and years maybe went by. of you praying the same prayer and nothing really happened and it made you feel like what is the point of all of this? And you feel like, you know, I believe in God and and I pray to God, but like I haven't really experienced any level of meaningful change in my life. And I don't know if you've ever felt this, but to be honest, I've had this realization before. I was doing devotions and praying, and as I was asking for forgiveness for the same thing over and over and over again, the thought occurred to me that it was like I was in an abusive relationship with God, and I was abusing him. And I was just doing whatever I wanted to do, and you know, what is he going to do? leave me? Is God going to leave? Is he going to not forgive me? No. Someone's going to continue doing what I'm going to do, and then when I mess up, I'll just say the magic words, dear God, forgive me, and then he'll forgive me, whatever that looks like, and then I'll continue, and I'll rinse and repeat, and it, it hit me that, you know, there's errors in my life, and maybe some of you can feel the same way, where you are consciously and continually intentionally doing things you know that disappoints, hurts, upsets God, who you're supposed to be in relationship with, and to be honest, Like, you don't really care because, I mean, really, what are the ramifications? You've been doing it for so long, and so far, you haven't been struck by lightning yet. There's no terrible thing happening to your life. And this is what we talked about last week. This is a very dangerous place to be because it's very, very comfortable to be here. It's very comfortable to claim that I believe in Jesus and and not do anything about it. It's one thing to say that you're a Christian. It's one thing to say that you follow Jesus. And it's one thing entirely to actually walk that walk. So really today, here's who the target audience is. If you feel like this, this is for you. The target audience is for someone that you feel like my relationship with Jesus is not one that is on fire. Like, I'm not on fire for Jesus. But like, I don't hate him either. I, I, I don't love serving. I'm not like jumping at the gun. I don't love doing devotions. I'm not on fire and passionate and sharing the word. But I definitely believe he exists. He is there. I believe in a God. I, let's just say I believe in the God of the Bible. I believe he exists. I believe he's for me. The promise still stands, does all that stuff. Um, but like, you know, he's a side character in my life. If you feel like you're in a relationship with God and you wear the pants in that relationship, to use a more colloquial term, right? If you feel like you're in a relationship with God but you wear the pants, you call the shots, you decide what's going, and God is there to support your life, this sermon is for you. Or to use a more biblical phrase, if you feel like my relationship with Jesus is very lukewarm. It's neither hot nor cold. But to be honest, better than being cold though, right? Like that's not the worst place in the world to be. If you describe yourself in your relationship with Jesus as, I am rich. You have acquired wealth and you do not need a thing from God. This message is for you. Because this is the warning that God gives to those that would describe their relationship as lukewarm, as neither hot nor cold, as not needing anything from Jesus. In the words of John in the book of Revelations, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This series is for those of us that feel like we need more of Jesus and less of ourselves if you feel that place if you feel like you're in a rut in your spiritual walk you feel like i haven't felt the transformative power of jesus i feel like i'm just doing my own thing and god is just along for the ride this series comeback season is for you if you're going to the word join me in a word of prayer heavenly father lord i just want to thank you again for the privilege of sharing your word and i ask that in this time you speak through me father that more of you means less of me so take me out of this equation, Father. I ask that in this time, hearts be opened and softened, Lord, that we can hear the relevance of your words today in our lives, hear the power of your words today. May you speak to those who need it, Father. May your will be done at rock as it is in heaven. Praise in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're in the first week of february and this is about time where if you made a new year's resolution to read through the bible it's about time that started withered away right about now is when that happens and correct me if i'm wrong and i've been there before i've tried to read the bible i have read the bible i've tried and failed and i've tried and succeeded several times here's what happens i feel like for most of us you start in genesis and it's good Right? Creation, yes, and you're on fire. You you start, you read four chapters at once the first day, right? You get through all of creation and humanity, the fall, you even get as far as like, ooh, like Cain and Abel, right? And and first, the Bible is great because it is very plot-driven, right? You get like iconic stories. You get Noah the Ark, right? Extra points because the animals, you get the Tower of Babel for like construction architecture fans, we got that. And then you got the heavy hitters, right? Then you get to the founding fathers, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Joseph. And so far, we're good. All of these stories have been made into movies at some point. So you know that this is good stuff. Very plot-driven. There's drama. There's, there's contests. There's back and forth. There's sin. There's like crazy things that are happening. And then you get to Exodus. And still, first half of Exodus is good, right? It's Prince of Egypt, you have the plagues, you have the let my people go, you have the character development of Moses, and it's like awesome to see him go through like in the palace to leave to be a shepherd, and then the comeback story of Moses, and it's awesome, right? And then you have the actual letting of my people go, and you have the iconic splitting of the Red Sea, and you get to Mount Sinai, and it's still okay at first because you have the Ten Commandments, and that's hype right? The Ten Commandments, you have the golden calf. He breaks the tablets. Oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? And then it really slows down after that. The plot, like, it just stops, right? They just stay at Sinai, and, like, you barely scrape by the end of Exodus. You're like, oh, my goodness, I made it. I made it through all, like, the how to build a tabernacle, how to do all this stuff. And you make it out, and you're left with the book of Leviticus. And if we're honest, This gets most of us, right? We get to Leviticus and we're like, what is going on? There is no plot. There is no storyline. There's no character development. It's just a bunch of rules and instructions for things you no longer do, right? And there's so much detail, like so much detail, like God and Moses cover all the exceptions. If you're gonna make a grain offering, it's different if you make it and you bake it in the oven versus if you're gonna make it on a griddle, like make sure you put salt on it, no yeast for any of this stuff. And it gets boring and rough because at a certain point, I'm sure you've asked the question, what is the point of this book? Right? What is the point of this book of Leviticus? And I feel like part of the reason it's such a difficult book to read through is that it, in such great detail, lists so many things that we don't do anymore, right? And, like, doesn't, and if you know the story of the Bible, you're like, oh my goodness, didn't Jesus do all of this? Like, didn't Jesus cover all, can I just skip this entire book? And I don't know if you've ever gone through the book of Leviticus, or maybe you're someone that tried reading it and it took you. Like, that's where you stopped. The book of Leviticus, and every time you try to read through the Bible, you get stuck Leviticus, or maybe you just skipped it. It's, it's a worthwhile question to ask, because it's true, right? There is a lot of detail about a lot of things that When is the last time you gave a grain offering? When is the last time you had to ordain a priest? When is the last time you were ceremonially unclean and you had to cleanse yourself? Never. The answer is never. Which begs the question then, what is the point of this book? And I think the purpose of of Leviticus becomes a little bit more clear. It becomes a little bit more interesting when you understand why this book exists. The context of Leviticus is this. God's people... The children of Israelites, these sinful, immature followers of Jesus have just been freed from slavery and they're now following Jesus in the wilderness and God is literally dwelling among them and the tabernacle has been built, which means God's literal presence is among the Israelites. And the tension that the book of Leviticus seeks to solve is how does a holy, pure, clean, flawless God interact and dwell with sinful, sinful, in pure, unholy humanity, right? Because we've seen a few examples up until this point where sin plus God cannot really coexist, right? The reason Adam and Eve were sent out of Eden, Adam and Eve were sent out of Eden because they introduced sin. Satan gets cast out of heaven. Earlier on in Exodus, Moses is unable to even look God in the face because there is just this contrast between how holy and pure and powerful god is and how sinful and impure humanity is and so the book of leviticus seeks to solve this tension how can a holy perfect god dwell and be among and interact with these sinful ignorant immature unclean humans And the way it solves this, in part, is through rituals, clean and unclean rules, but um, a large part of it is through the sacrificial system. And so if you're unfamiliar with this, um, at its base level, it's that when you sin, and when you sin against God, you bring an animal. Bring an animal to the priest, bring an animal to the altar that can have no physical defects. The type of animal can depend on the offering and how much money you have, but you bring the animal, and that animal essentially atones for or covers for your sin. So even though you sinned, this animal takes the punishment for you and the blood or the lifeline of the animal gets poured out and you witness all this happen and then you are forgiven. At its base, there's a little bit more to that, but at, at its base, that's essentially what the sacrificial system is all about. How you are unclean and you are a sinner, but the way you can be freed from your forgiveness is in part through this sacrificial system. And this accomplishes kind of two things. And the first is, on a surface level, The idea of bringing that animal and watching it you can imagine it's kind of a it's a gruesome scene right if every time you sinned you had to bring an animal to god and and it died for you and you witnessed literally something else dying in your stead it almost acts as like a soft deterrent to sin right i think most of us would say like yeah if every time i told a lie i had to kill my pet i would probably lie less right and there's that aspect there and the second is this is that it gave the Israelites. The assurance that when I sin and I bring this animal to the altar and it dies in my stead, I have the assurance that I am now forgiven. And the reason this is important is because it contrasts other gods of the ancient time. And if you've ever read anything about Greek mythology, right, the Iliad or the Odyssey or, or Percy Jackson even, you know that in ancient times, their view of sacrifice to the gods was much more vague, where you would be a sailor going on a, on a sea passage, and you would want Poseidon, the Greek god, to grant you safe passage. So you sacrifice an animal to Poseidon, and you hope, oh, I hope he likes this, I hope he does things in my favor, but I don't really know because sometimes they still get mad anyway. And there's, there's this fickle nature to those ancient gods. But the Hebrew God and the reason Leviticus was so revolutionary for its time is that these Israelites would know with absolute confidence that when they brought this to God and when they confessed their sins and when this animal died in their stead, they could be confident and assured that they were in fact forgiven. And they could become members of the Israelite society and continue uh, living in and interacting with God. And the kind of climax of this book occurs in the very middle uh, on the Day of Atonement. It's the day that describes an annual event that happens every year where you can imagine that if you had to, you know, individually bring these animals to God every time you sinned, there's a lot of stuff that goes unforgiven, right? All like the stuff, the gaps in the middle, all like the side sins, all the consequences of sin that maybe you didn't account for. So once a year, the high priest got two goats, cast lots, determined which goat did what, and one, one goat would die like a normal sacrifice. They would kill the goat and then the blood would go pour out and that some of that blood would be carried into the presence of God and sprinkled on to cover and atone for the sins of the entire Israelite community. The second goat that was alive would have all the guilt and the responsibility of Israelite sin placed upon it, and then that goat would be carried out into the wilderness and it would be kind of let go. This was known as the scapegoat. And this is kind of a word we still use today, and this was kind of God's ultimate way of like, this is how I'm atoning for, covering for, paying for, making up for all the sins of this community, and this is how I'm going to continue to dwell with my people. We'll continue to cleanse you guys, forgive you guys of sin, and this is kind of like the structure that was put in place at the very beginning of Israelite society, and they carry this on all the way through the Old Testament. When you read the book of Leviticus and you understand that in that context, I feel like one of the things that stands out is, like, this, is, this was a really big deal for these people, right? The idea of sin and repentance and confession and forgiveness was, like, weighty. Like, you had to bring an animal you raised, a valuable animal, because it could have no physical defects, bring it, and then you would watch some other living thing die in your place to atone for something you did. This goat, this sheep, that pigeon did nothing, But it's dying in your stead. So you can see, like, the gravity. And you could imagine if you had to do that. I asked this in in the youth Sabbath school. Like, imagine if every time you told a lie, you had to bring your pet, right, to church. And then your pet died because you cheated on your test. Like, it's like the gravity of it is so much more. And the reality is, I feel like for a lot of us, we don't really feel that anymore, right? Because, A, Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Um, Jesus died for us. And because of that, if you grew up in church, you hear this phrase a lot, you have been extended the free gift of grace. Grace that was purchased at a costly price has been freely given to you. And I think for a lot of us, the tension and the difficulty of, of grace is that we don't really feel the significance of, of it anymore, right? All you have to do is just close your eyes and pray, and sure, like you're, you have to feel bad a little bit, but you just ask God to forgive you, and it's like, I think I'm forgiven now, right? I pray and ask for forgiveness, and God forgives me, and he loves me. And even if he doesn't forgive me, like, is he going to leave me? Like, God always loves me. And there's this weird tension of where it feels like grace and the idea of being forgiven, it's so easy that it's almost become, like, cheap. Like, grace has become so cheap for us because we miss the gravity of what it really is all about. We miss the gravity of, like, well, what, how bad is it really that I've replaced God in my life or that, you know, I don't obey God for everything. And maybe some of you at some point have thought, and I've thought this before, that, okay, if, if I could go back to Israelite times, and I bet you anything, that if I had to actually do those things, like if I had to actually watch an animal die in my place, I bet you I would sin less. I bet you if, if we as a society went back to that, and, you know, it's kind of gruesome and gross, but I bet you we would all sin less, and, like, we would then understand the gravity of sin. But to say that, actually... If you ever felt that way, you would be grossly underestimating humanity because fast forward a few books in the book of Isaiah and the book of Hosea, the main critique that God has against the nation of Israel is this. Hey guys, you guys keep offering these sacrifices and you guys have kept up with that. That's good and all, but why are we still sinning? And we see an image of Israel that has gone to the point where You know, the idea of sacrifices and coming to God and asking for repentance, that's embedded deeply into the culture. You're going to do that. The problem was it ceased to have any meaning for them anymore. You just show up to the temple, you buy your animal there, and it dies. You're forgiven. All right, let's continue to live my life the way it was. And the critique that Isaiah and Hosea have to the nation of Israel is you don't understand what this is all about anymore. And this whole process of becoming forgiven, it's lost its entire meaning on you because you are not changing at all. You do this and you ask for forgiveness and the nation of Israel has gotten more and more corrupt even though you've kept these sacrifices. Up. And I feel like for a lot of us, the challenge of being a modern-day Christian and the challenge of if you feel like I'm kind of like, you know, I'm not on a fire for Jesus, but I don't hate Jesus, is that we go through the same thing. And I'm going to read that passage, and I'll read it in a little bit, of how God is critiquing the nation of Israel for asking for forgiveness or doing the right thing, yet their hearts are hardened and they continue to oppress and sin and on a national and individual level, be just like their pagan neighbors, I can't help but feel like this is something that we struggle with today. How many times have you asked for forgiveness and God, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, and then you do it again. How many times have you prayed and asked like, oh God, like I need your forgiveness and your grace, I'm sorry, I messed up, and you have no intention really of making any change. And your life is the same before and after. And I feel like the idea of forgiveness without change, the idea of grace without transformation is a very scary place to be for a Christian because I feel like that leads to that forgiveness without change, grace without transformation, it leads to very entitled, comfortable, nominal, and arrogant Christians. I feel like that mentality of I can just do whatever I want, and like, do I need to be forgiven? Maybe I'll just pray about it, and then God will forgive me. I continue living my life. It leads to people that go to church and do the right thing, because, again, Israel still went through the motions of continuing to give sacrifices. They would go to the temple during Passover. It leads to people that go to church um, but don't bring Jesus back home. It leads to people that identify as Christians. Yes, i'm a christian i go to church i do this thing but they don't live the lifestyle of jesus it leads to really what old testament israel looked like we're on paper yeah we've kept all these ceremonies we continue to ask for forgiveness we continue to offer our sacrifices we go we do all these things but um our hearts have no real respect or place for god inside of our lives and it got to the point where the nation of Israel during Israel's t- uh, the nation of Israel, especially during the time of Isaiah, really was no different than its pagan neighbors. Even though, even though the motions were the same, people continued to do the right things, but their hearts were hardened because there was no need for God. And for this nation of Israel, this is God's critique. This is what God tells them through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter one, verses eleven through fifteen. It reads, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of goats and bulls, of bulls and lambs and goats. And this is interesting that Jesus says this because he reminds them hey, guys, I don't actually need these animals. I, I'm not looking for a barbecue. I'm not looking for just, I just enjoy the smell of dead flesh. You have totally missed what this is all about. I don't need the blood of these animals. And actually, he says later, I don't even li- I don't like seeing this happen. And you've totally missed the point of what this relationship is all about. You just feel like if you go through the motions and do the right thing, that I will be with you, but you don't really care about me. Like, what is this? Again, this is the description of a lukewarm Israel. Like, you're not not doing this stuff. But it's not changing you because you don't care what I have to say in your life. You just want to do the right things in front of everyone. But in your heart, there's no respect for me. There's no change. There's no transformation going on in your lives. The next verse reads this. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop, the, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbath, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. This, When I read this and I found this passage while preparing for this message today, shook me a lot actually because i don't know i don't really picture god saying stuff like this but the indictment that god makes to israel is this we have a covenant you were supposed to be my people all supposed to be your god we're supposed to be in relationship and you've really just taken advantage of me you just live the life that you want to do and i am here to serve you to just get rid of your guilt to embolden you to continue to live the same life you've always lived, what is the point of this then? Am I even your God? If you do all, And then you do all of that, and then you show up to these assemblies and have these feasts, but you don't care about any of this. You don't care about me. You don't care about obeying my word at all. You just want the comfort to be able to live the life that you want to live, do what you want to do, and then I'm just a side character that makes you feel better and embolden all of your mistakes because you just feel like as long as I... As long as I bring this animal, I'm good, right, God? As long as I pray and ask for forgiveness, I can continue to live the life that I want, right? And the theological significance of this passage in particular is that it describes what happens to our relationship with God when we fail to grasp the significance and the importance of the consequence of our sins. From a theological standpoint, when we come before God in prayer and in assembly without having dealt with our sins, we allow sin to create a barrier between us and God. Remember, one of the main things that the sacrificial system allowed, especially in Old Testament Israel where there's a tabernacle was, it allowed Israel to continue to live in the presence of God. Because remember, a holy God cannot coexist with sinful people that continue to live in sin. And then from a practical standpoint, living as a lukewarm Christian, as not bad as it may seem, where you have one foot here, one foot there, you don't love God, you don't hate God, but God really serves you in most of your life the practical standpoint the difficulty of this it a it takes away our need for god israel didn't need god in this situation the israel that isaiah is talking to had no need for a god really god was just i don't know part of their culture this is just what we do every year we got to go to the temple and we got to kill animals. oh that's what you do when you mess up you just bring an animal there you kill it and then It just became a part of the culture. All of the significance of sin and repentance and confession and forgiveness had lost all meaning. And on top of that, what it makes us do today when we live in that situation, and really what it made Israel do, was it makes you a hypocrite. It makes you do what is right. It makes you value doing what is right in front of others above having God change your heart. In other words, you do what is right in front of people, but then behind closed doors in your own hearts. You have no reverence or respect for who God is, for what he has done. Let me ask you this question. And I asked this question last week. I asked the question if, do you know, are you, I asked the question, are you disobeying God in your life? Do you feel like you're disobeying God's word in your life? And then the second question I asked is, do you know what God's will for your life is? Are you listening for God's voice? Are you listening for God's word? Do you know what God's word to you is? And the third question, if you answer, I don't know what that is, do you, do you care what god's word in your life is right because to be honest ignorance is bliss nine times out of ten when god speaks to someone in the bible it shakes up their life it thrusts them out of their comfort zone it makes them repent and come back and change their life but i think for a lot of us the reason this question is important it asks the question what are we to god what is god to us because really when we live our lives like this when we allow grace to be cheap and just the idea of yeah, I'm a Christian, and I live my own life, and, you know, sometimes when I mess up, I allow God to get my guilt away from me so I can continue living my life guilt and shame free, it really cheapens grace, and it really kind of undermines the entire message of the gospel. What was the big deal of Jesus dying for us? What was it all about? And so the question then I have for this series, um, and really for this message today, is if we are looking to make grace not so cheap anymore. Like, how do we understand today, right, without having to sacrifice an animal, how can we today in 2023 understand the weight and significance of the grace that we have received from God? Because a lot of times, if we're honest, it's lost because it happened so long ago that 2,000 years ago, a human being walked around. His name was Jesus, and he was God in a body, and he died for our sins. And we teach that to our our kids. We teach that in Sabbath school. We grew up hearing, hearing about it. But I think at times, it's... It was so long ago, right? I wasn't there to see it, right? I don't even know. Does that really affect me? How can I make that grace more real for my life today? How can I make grace not so cheap? How can I experience and realize how expensive and costly grace is in my own life? And the reason I feel like this is an important question is, it's really easy to receive grace. Receiving grace, I feel like it's so, so easy. And it's like, depending on where you are and who you received it from, it can not impact your life at all. Here's why I say that. When I was in college, I was a freshman. My freshman year, first semester, I took a, a psychology class as a gen ed. My second semester, I had a friend, another theology major, that took the exact same class. And when finals came around, she told me, she asked me, hey, you did the class last year, like, hey, any help? Can I get some any help on, on the final essay? I'm having some trouble with it. I say, yeah. I try to explain a little bit. I was like, you know what? It'd be easier if I just gave you my essay and you can look at it and see what I did. I did not say you could copy it or turn it in. All I said was, listen, it might be easier if you just looked at my essay and then like, let that inspire you, whatever that means. I took this class five months ago, keep that in mind. A week later, I got a phone call from the same person and she said, hey, Jonathan, what's up? I was like, hey, this is like end of the semester now, right? We're wrapping up, it's like the last week or two of school and they say, I'm on my way to the professor's office um, because I turned in your paper word for word. <laughs> and I don't even think she changed the name, to be honest. And the professor was like, hey, this paper looks really familiar. And she told me, I'm on the way to the office now. Just thought I should let you know. Click. When I tell you, like, rage is an understand. I was so, like, deeply, like... I was shocked, like, how could you do this to me? And now I'm freaking out because, like, I'm a theology major, right? And then, and then she's also, the, like, oh, my goodness, like, what kind of example? Like, I just told everyone that I'm going to study theology, and, like, now I'm going to get expelled for academic dishonest. Like, what is this ridiculousness? And I feel like the timing of the phone call was very rude. I was like, either call me afterwards or call me way before. But she called me, I'm, like, right outside the office. And so for the next 30 minutes, I was just simmering and like, what do i do like is there a phone call i can make should i like email him first and state my case i'm trying to pull up like text messages like what did i say exactly that she could do with this and then 30 minutes later she called me back and i picked up i went away from my I was in the room i was like hey what happened and she said good news um he said i could just rewrite it on my own and did not mention you at all. I was like, really? Like, he didn't say anything about a Jonathan about failing somebody, about some theology major that's going to get expelled? And she said, no. He said, hey, this paper looks very familiar. I would like you to rewrite it in your own words. That's all he said. And like the wave of relief that washed over me. I was like, yes! Evanist education! This is what I'm talking about! Grace! Thank you! And here's why I say that that receiving grace is much easier than giving it out because I could not tell you that professor's name. I'm going to be honest. Despite what he did for me, and honestly, you can make it, oh, like, you probably wouldn't have gotten in trouble because, like, you know, you didn't actually write it. I read the syllabus. That's textbook academic dishonesty. He had every right to bring that up to the dean or to the head of the religion department and be like, do we want this? Do we want this scum to become a pastor, right? Like, he had every right to do that. I signed off on that class. I gave it. I was not coerced. She didn't threaten me. He had every right to ruin my academic life right then, to be honest. And he didn't. And for a second, I felt much relief. And then I just continued living my life the next day. I think for a lot of us, that's kind of our relationship with God, right? Maybe every once in a while, we have this like, oh my goodness, God, I, I messed up. I, I apologize. I'm sorry please forgive me. I I goofed up. Okay, I'm forgiven now, right? Okay, perfect. Let's continue living my life. And the reason I feel like this is such a big problem is, again, it really cheapens the value of grace. Grace is not an expensive gift that was bought at such a costly price. It's just you say a few magic words and you continue living your life. So I feel like here is my solution. For those of you that feel any sort of things I talk about, lukewarm, unsure about this whole thing, feel like repentance and forgiveness should be a bigger deal than it is, but you don't know how to, want to feel the gravity and weight of your sins being forgiven a little bit more, make it a little more real for your life, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. This week, try extending grace to somebody in your own life. And here's what I mean by that. Try finding someone in your life that has legitimately wronged you, Someone that, for all intents and purposes, should be punished for what they did to do. Someone that hurt you or someone you loved, either emotionally, physically, financially, and try forgiving that person. Try going to someone like that and saying, you know what, you hurt me, and I have every right to punish you to the fullest extent, whatever that would be, and try letting it go. Obviously, a disclaimer, the idea of forgiving someone and trusting someone again is, is different. I'm not asking you to, you know... There's parameters for abuse or parameters for trusting people that have wronged you. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you have to welcome this person back into their life. All I'm saying is try forgiving someone. Try extending grace to someone that has legitimately hurt you and see how difficult that can be. I've shared this story before, at least in part, but growing up, I hated church. There was a a solid few years of my life where church was the worst, and the reason was uh, I grew up in kind of this weird age gap in my church where I had no friends. And maybe some of you have felt this, maybe some of the youth and the children can feel this, where I had no guy my age. There was a girl, there was like a younger-ish girl group, maybe like one or two years younger than me. But like, you know, I'm not going to hang out with my sister's friends, that's a little weird. And some, but sometimes I still would, right? Because like beggars can't be choosers. And then there was another group of like older guys, maybe three like four to seven years older than me, which is like a huge gap when you're, when you're eight, right? The difference between an eight-year-old and the 13-year-old is huge, right? And so me, being the ambitious boy that I am, I was like, I'm gonna hang out with the older dudes, right? And unfortunately for me, the main thing that these older guys would do, the thing at our church was, was tackle football, right? We didn't wanna play basketball. We didn't wanna play card games or board games. We would play tackle football every week, right? On the Sabbath, I don't know how holy this was, but it is what it is. And when I tell you that there is a really big difference between a third grader getting tackled by an eighth grader and vice versa, like, I got wrecked every week. And on top of that, given just the, the social dynamic of being a kid that age, there was a lot of bullying. There's a lot of picking, and there's definitely a pecking order in our youth. And I remember one of the older guys described the pecking order with just such High level of social study. He said, there's this guy, and he picks on this guy. This guy picks on this guy. This guy picks on this guy, and then this guy picks on Jonathan. And then Jonathan is sad. <laughs> that was the picking order of our church. And what's, what's messed up is that I was listening to him say it. And I was, like, laughing. <laughs> that's true. He does pick on that. <laughs> that's true. And, oh, that's it. But it was, it was actually very true. Like, honestly, I feel like if there was someone younger than me, I probably would have picked on them just out of spite. But there wasn't. It wasn't that I was a good person. It was just that was my lot in life. And I say this out of humor now, and I, to be honest, I don't remember a lot of it. But I remember my mom telling me that there were so many weeks I would come home from church crying and saying, I don't want to go to church anymore. Um, she never opened up the option of not going to church, to be honest. So I was crying on the way to church and back from church um, because that was not really an option for me. Um, but she did say that there was a, a few years in my life where, I hated, she said, you hated going to church. And, you know, you went anyways. But if you were to ask me, why do you go to church? If you ask 99.9% of our youth, anyone in high school, or younger Taylor, why do you come to church? A big reason is like, my friends are here. I got to see my friends. That was never really a reason for me growing up in church. I didn't really have friends in church. Um, and not only did I not have friends in church, I was actively bullied for a lot of church by these older guys that I desperately wanted to be a part of. And maybe you're a parent and you've experienced this for your child. Right? And I imagine, again, I'm not a parent, but I imagine it's a very helpless place to be where someone you love, someone that is so precious to you is being hurt by another stupid young kid, right? And you're like, what do I do, right? I want to fight this injustice. I want to make this right wrong. And I'm sure there's a struggle, right? Do I tackle it myself? Do I just beat up this kid, right? Do I talk to their parents, right? Do I bring another authority in? And I imagine it's a very difficult situation. And a few years ago, My mom told me what her solution was. Keep in mind, I'm like 22, 23 when she tells me this. I'm out of college. I'm much older. All of this is way behind me now. And she said, hey, do you remember when so-and-so would pick on you at church? I said, yeah, I do. That was rough. That was real rough. She said, yeah, I remember. And she said, do you know what I did? I said, no, I don't remember you doing anything, actually. And she said, here's what I did. She said, I invited him over to our house. I was like, yeah, and then what? You yelled at him, like, at our house, right? Home court advantage, right? Yelled at him there, and she said, no. I invited him to our house, and I asked what his favorite meal was to his mom, and he was like, cream barbecue, like, you know, like, cream short ribs, and she said, and then I cooked that for him, and I was like, yeah, and you put, like, laxatives in it, huh? And you did something, (laughs) yeah, and she said, no. I cooked it as well as I could, and I invited him over, and we ate together. And I was like, and then, right, carrot and the stick. And then you feed him, and then you yelled at him after he was full and happy. And she said, no, that's it. And we hung out. He came over to house, and then he went back home. And I said, and then what? And she said, and then a few weeks later, you told me that he stopped bothering you as much. And again, I don't remember this story at all. But I do know that by the time I was in high school, when I was in late junior high we had become friends. And actually, that person played a significant role in me being the youth pastor that I am today. But remember, my mom told me this when I was 20, much older. This is way behind me. And the first thought I had was, how did you do it? How did you find the time, the energy, the emotional courage to go out of your way to ask, right? What is, your, what is your favorite thing in the world? Now let me spend hours cooking that for you. Let me invite you to my house. Let me serve you. Let me clean up after you. Even though for the past two years, you have been ruining my son's experience with church. My son comes home crying because of you from church. And she served this boy, cleaned up after him, with no guarantee of change at all. Like it's very possible that she did this And the next week, he punches me in the face, right? Continues calling me names. It's very possible, right? There was no contract that he signed. There was no guarantee. She did all of this, just the Hail Mary pass. Let me take a page out of Jesus' book. Let me try showing grace to this individual. And again, the whole time she was telling me this story, all I could think about was how difficult it must have been for her to do this. How difficult it must have been to invite someone into her house that for all intents and purposes, she probably wanted to punish, to yell at, to shame, and instead serve him. Serve him according to his preferences. What do you like? How do you like it? Let me, let me cook for you. Let me, let me show love to you in the hopes that it can change you. And the reason I bring this up is this. I feel like the easiest way for us to really understand what grace is really all about, the easiest way for us to understand the magnitude of what it means to be forgiven by God, what it means to be, to have our sins atoned for and forgiven, what it means that Jesus 1,000, 2,000 years ago died for our sins, is when you turn around to somebody in your life and you try extending grace to them. Somebody that has hurt you, Somebody that has wronged you, somebody that has taken advantage of you, and you say, I'm going to let you get away with this. Because grace, at its very core, is such an unfair concept, right? It's picking up the bill for someone else's meal. It's someone punches you in the face, fractures their arm, and you pay for that medical bill, right? It's so deeply unfair and so illogical. But the reason I think Jesus challenges us is in the same way that he loves us, he asks us to love the person next to us, is because not only is it good and loving, But for you as a follower of Jesus, it reminds you of what you have received on a daily basis. And when you experience the difficulty, the heart wrench, the weight of trying to extend grace to someone that you don't like, to someone that doesn't deserve it, to someone that has hurt you and taken from you, and you let them get away with it and you forgive them, we on a small, small level get the privilege of seeing God's perspective towards humanity and understanding what it truly means to be forgiven by God. I can say with absolute certainty that every time I've wandered away from God, every time I felt I was lukewarm in my own walk with God, the thing that brought me back to God wasn't just, wasn't some miraculous event. It wasn't some thought-provoking theological insight. It was an experience of God's love and grace. The reminder that though I am an arrogant sinner, that I was someone that Jesus humbled himself for in becoming a human, and in doing so, he became a servant to humanity, a slave to humanity for 33 years before being killed at the hands of the people he came to save. And that every day, God offers me forgiveness and grace from a never-ending well of love and patience that was all made possible that because while I was still a sinner, before I became hot or cold, while I was still lukewarm, while I was still unsure, while I was still going through the motions, while I was still a hypocrite, while I had not yet committed to following Jesus, my life was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. There are three things I want to ask you to do this week, that if you felt any of these things at all, that can help you kind of move away from this spiritual lukewarmness. And the first is this, ask God and pray that he gives you a name, someone in your life that you should extend grace to, or at least keep you open to the opportunity to give grace to someone in your life, so you yourself can share in the love of God and extending it to others. And the second is a little bit different. I want you this time, when you pray, and I imagine there's regular times you pray, whether it's before a devotional or before a meal, I want us to pause before the end of each prayer. And if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, most of us probably end our prayers with the phrase, in Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. And it almost becomes like just one lump of word. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's how we end a lot of our prayers. And the reason I, I, I want us to pause there and add a little bit more significance to that event there is it does two things. It reminds us, again, that Jesus is the reason we can bring our prayer and our request to God. But the second half of what the sacrificial system was all about, remember, was that it allowed Israel to become pure and clean symbolically to, therefore, be in the presence of God. And the reason they are able to come before God was because of these sacrifices that these other animals made. If you look at the, the procedures that a priest had to do just to enter into the tabernacle, just to get into the presence of God, it was like they had to change, they had to cleanse themselves, they had to bring a sacrifice themselves, and if you missed up missed any of those rules and you entered and then you died right and that was really like like how important it was and really what i feel like we miss when we end our prayers with just interesting men is that we forget that part of what jesus did for us is that it gave us the privilege and the access to god because jesus has purified us and given us that audience that direct line to god in and of itself the next is much simpler i invite you to come back next week if you notice, yet we haven't really talked about the mechanics of repentance and forgiveness and what that really looks like. And again, if any of this is applicable to you, I invite you to join us next week um, because it's not just going to be about what repentance is not and what forgiveness is not, which is really what we've been talking about so far. We'll talk about how the act of regularly implementing repentance and forgiveness in your life in the same way that fasting or prayer is can change your heart and how a true experience with grace will transform your heart and change who you are let's pray heavenly father lord i want to thank you for the amazing grace that we so often sing about that maybe we don't often really take into account god i think it's easy for us because of what you've done to at times take your love take your sacrifice take your forgiveness for granted lord and for that we ask for forgiveness we ask for your help in continuing to come back to you god Lord, I ask at this point that you forgive us, forgive us, Rock, forgive every single person here, forgive myself of any sin that we have committed, Father, and I ask that you give us the strength to repent and turn back to you, Lord. We thank you for the grace that you've given us that we may never really truly ever understand, Father, and we ask for the strength to then extend that to the people around us, Father. Give us a name, give us a face, give us the strength to go find our neighbor and extend grace to them that in doing so, We may not only obey you and follow your example, but that we can truly experience the power and the transformative power and change that grace can bring into our lives. Father, this is our prayer. We thank you for what you have done. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're a God that always keeps your promises. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.